Well, imagine if you knew exactly what day you would die. Imagine if you knew how you would die. What would your life be like the few days leading up to your death? I know a few things that I would do. For starters, I would eat at Heim Barbecue in Fort Worth, Texas, at least one last time. Their bacon burnt ends, when you eat them, it's a spiritual experience. The first time I tasted it, I'm not lying. I'm not a charismatic and read into things, but man, the first time I ate their bacon burnt ends, it was a spiritual experience. They will be in the new earth when Jesus comes back. So one thing I'd do if I knew I was going to die in a few days, I'd do my best to get back to Heim Barbecue. I also would go on a date for every meal with my wife, Heather, probably at Heim Barbecue. I would hug and squeeze my six kids a lot. I would try to see my mom and dad and my brothers and my sister. I'd probably watch a few episodes of The Twilight Zone, no surprise there. And I would keep reading my Bible and praying, even though I know that in a few days, a lot of it would make a lot more sense. Imagine if you knew exactly what day you would die. Imagine if you knew how you would die. What would your life be like a few days leading up to your death? Would you be interested in playing a few games of Bible trivia? Well, that's exactly what Jesus experienced on the Tuesday before his death. Jesus knew when and how he would die, and that's where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We have to keep this in mind as we make our way to the end of this book, because we are in a section in Mark's Gospel where the things that we will look at over the next few weeks all occurred on Tuesday of Holy Week, just a few days before Jesus died. So we are about three days away from the crucifixion of Jesus in Mark's gospel. And Jesus knows that his day of death is coming. It's on his mind as he does everything that he does in the rest of Mark's gospel. And it's on his mind as he plays a game of Bible trivia with some of the leading religious authorities, as we'll see in our passage today. And the truth that we'll see emerge from these three games of Bible trivia pertains to what is the most important thing in life. What is the most important thing for a believer? Now, if you're not a Christian, the most important thing in your life and the most important thing in your death is that you need to be reconciled to God. You need forgiveness of your sins. You need peace with God. That's the most important thing if you are an unbeliever, you're not a Christian. But for a believer, we're going to see what the most important thing in life is and what matters most while you are still living. And what matters most even in the last few days of your life before your death. And so here's our big idea. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior, and then you'll be free to love on your neighbor. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior, and then you will be free to love on your neighbor. What I mean is that an unhealthy focus and fascination on your sin and on your failures or on your supposed goodness will not prompt you to Christian growth. It will not prompt you to loving and serving others. You must look outside of yourself You must look to Jesus. You must look to the gospel. You must remember what God has already done for you in the gospel. You must, as we like to say around here, rehearse the gospel. And that will cause you to love your neighbor. 
Understand this, Grace. We actually perform better. We actually grow as Christians as we grow in our understanding that our relationship with God is not based on our performance for God, but Jesus' performance for us. Christian growth does not happen through behaving better, but by believing better. Let me say that again. Christian growth. This is how you grow as a Christian. Do you want to know how you grow as a Christian? How do you grow as a Christian? Christian growth does not happen through behaving better. i got to be better. Christian growth happens by believing better. Growth happens as we believe everything that Jesus has already done and accomplished for us. It's as we believe God's promises. Growth happens when we actually believe the gospel, that it's true. Growth happens when we actually believe God is good. He is as gracious and loving and kind and gentle and merciful as he says he is. He's not a hard taskmaster. He does not view me with his arms crossed and a frown on his face. He loves me. And that belief, belief in that, That belief, that trust, that faith is then what will catapult us out to serve our neighbors in love. We will only grow as disciples. We will only love and serve others when we realize what Christ has already done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so here's the hard work of sanctification. Here's the hardest part about being a Christian. To think less of me and my performance and more of Jesus and his performance for me. The irony is that we actually get worse when we focus on ourselves. We become self-absorbed over our performance for God. We become self-centered as we are consumed with our behavior, whether good behavior or bad behavior. You focus on your bad behavior, you're going to be depressed. You focus on your good behavior, you're going to be full of pride. Love for God and love for for neighbor happens, and that's the most important thing in our lives, loving God and loving our neighbors, that happens when we look to Jesus. And anybody can look to Jesus, right? Doesn't matter how old you are. Children, you can look to Jesus. And let's look to him now in his word. Mark chapter 12, we'll begin with verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, we're not sure who the they are in verse 13 the ones who sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. But most likely, uh, Mark is referring to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest ruling body and court of justice among the Jews in the time of Jesus. It was headed up by the high priest of Israel, 
And it was granted limited authority by the Roman government over certain religious and civil and criminal matters. So the Sanhedrin even had their own temple police force. So it could make arrests of its own. In fact, it's this temple police force who would arrest Jesus in a few days in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Sanhedrin consisted of three major groups. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And in this section that we're looking at today in Mark's gospel, all three of these groups will approach Jesus and ask him questions. All three will try and beat Jesus at a game of Bible trivia. They will ask Jesus questions with the hope of getting some dirt, getting some ammunition that they can use to call for his arrest. And the first group that comes to Jesus are the Pharisees. But they show up, believe it or not, which with their archenemies, the Herodians. Who were the Herodians and why is it significant that they have linked up with the Pharisees? The Herodians were Jews who were supporters of Herod. And they did not like how stuffy and uptight the Pharisees were. Both groups did not like each other. The Herodians were Jews who wanted to embrace Roman values. They were progressive. They were liberal in their thinking. And the Pharisees obviously hated them. But these two opposing groups come together in order to trap Jesus. That's the whole reason they're talking with Jesus. The Pharisees want to catch him, slip up in his theology, so they can accuse him of blasphemy and report him to the Sanhedrin. And the Herodians are hoping that Jesus will slip up in his political views so that they can report him to Rome. So both groups had the same goal, to trap Jesus so that he'd slip up and then get arrested. But the Pharisees and the Herodians don't know that Jesus knows their hearts. Jesus knows that this is the reason why they are asking him questions. And Jesus knows his Bible. How in the world are you going to trap a guy who not only knows his Bible forwards and backwards, but also knows your heart forwards and backwards? You can't. You cannot beat Jesus at Bible trivia. And you cannot beat Jesus at reading your own heart. That's humbling. Jesus knows your heart better than you do. Wow. Jesus will not be fooled by our own self-diagnosis. Jesus will not be fooled by our own self-diagnosis. He sees everything in our hearts and he still loves us wow he sees everything in our hearts and he still loves us we could just stop the sermon right now at 9:38 and we could cry or sit in silence or rejoice or maybe even dance he knows our hearts And he still loves us. Wow. Did you notice what they said about Jesus in verse 14? Look at verse 14. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Wow. Can you imagine being able to live like that? Can you imagine being so free that you do not care what people think of you? Can you imagine what it would be like to live in such a way that you were not swayed by appearances? 
You can. You can live that way, Christian. The gospel frees you from that kind of slavery. It frees you from being a people pleaser. Jesus came to set you and me free from worrying about what other people think of us. Jesus came to set us free from obsessing over how others view us and what they think about us and what their opinion of us is. And so how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we're not slaves to what other people think of us? How do we get to the place where we are no longer people pleasers? Well, let me ask you, do you want to be set free from the fear of man today? Are you a people pleaser? Are you crushed when you are criticized? Crushed when you receive negative feedback? If so, how can you be set free from that bondage? The answer is the gospel. We have to look to Jesus And when we look to Jesus in the scriptures, we find someone who was so secure in his father's love that he truly did not need man's approval. Jesus did not care about anyone's opinion. He was not a slave to what others thought of him. He wasn't swayed by appearances. How did he do this? How in the world did he do this? Because if we're honest, we all struggle with this, don't we? If we're honest, we all can become slaves to what other people think of us. We can become, and we are, people pleasers. We can, and we do spend our energy trying to get people to like us, to like our posts on social media. Oh, the rush when you see that red heart. And when there's no red hearts, it's like, I worked so hard on that. It was so clever and witty. No hearts. But that red heart, the red blood in our body just starts pumping. We want to be liked. We want people to like our posts on social media. We want people to approve of us, don't we? We just want to be loved and liked by everyone. We're like Sally Fields when she got that. Oh, you like me. You, You really like me, don't you? It's proof you really like me. You love me. That's what we want. We all struggle with this. So how do we get set free from that kind of bondage? We have to look to Jesus. We have to focus on Jesus, and anybody can look to Jesus. So how did Jesus do it? He was able to live a life free from people-pleasing, free from the fear of man, because he knew that his relationship with his heavenly Father was secure. He was accepted by God. He was his beloved son, and nothing could change that, and that changed everything. We can walk in that freedom too, Grace. Jesus came to set us free from the fear of man, being locked up in the chains of people-pleasing. We can walk in that freedom when we rehearse the gospel. Tim Keller says, Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? In Christianity, the moment we believe, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, the verdict is in. And now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because he loves me and he accepts me, I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I do not have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people. 
Because we are fully accepted by God, because we are his beloved sons and daughters in whom he is well pleased, we don't have to do things to build up our resume, to build up our reputation in the eyes of others, or to make ourselves look good. We're free now. We're free to love and serve others. Free to help people just to help people. And not to help them just so that we can look good or feel good about ourselves. We're free to just help because we just want to help. Not because we're like, i got to take a, a selfie of me serving in the soup kitchen. And i got to post it online so I can get those red hearts again. And that's why I'm really serving at the soup kitchen. We're free from all that. Now I can just go serve at the soup kitchen or wherever. Just because I want to. That's how Jesus did ministry. He was secure in his identity as God's beloved son. So he was free to love and serve and minister to others. And he didn't have to worry about trying to please both of these opposing groups that came to him, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we're trying to please two different groups. But Mark shows us here that Jesus was free from having to choose one over the other. When the Pharisees and the Herodians asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus was so free that he could simply speak the truth because he didn't care what people thought of him and because he was not swayed by appearances. So Jesus didn't have to come down on either side. Here in Mark 12, as always, get that as always part, Here in Mark 12, as always, Jesus isn't interested in coming down on a political side. He isn't picking a political party. His focus is not on whether Rome is an evil government that's oppressing Israel with taxes. His focus is on his coming death on the cross, which is just three days away. His focus is not pointing out all the evils of government. So Jesus simply tells both of these groups that they should pay their taxes and they should give to God. And so he asks them for a coin, a denarius. And he points out Caesar's likeness, which is on the denarius, on the coin. And he simply tells them that they should pay their taxes and they should give to God. Pay your taxes, pay your tithe. That's it. The Pharisees and the Herodians thought they could trap Jesus. They thought they could go toe-to-toe with Jesus and then Jesus shut them down. And Mark tells us in verse 17 that they left marveling at Jesus. They wanted to trap Jesus, and he shut their mouths. And then Mark tells us in verse 18 that another group comes to trap Jesus. Another group comes to challenge Jesus in a game of Bible trivia. They don't know this yet, but this will not end well. Look at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So another group from the Sanhedrin comes to play a game of Bible trivia with Jesus. They don't know just yet that there's no way they're going to win this game. But try they will. This time it's the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees were a religious group that is famous for, as Mark tells us here, for having rejected the idea of the resurrection. They also rejected the oral and written traditions that were passed down through the centuries. So if you remember, the Pharisees elevated their traditions. They elevated their man-made rules up to the same level as God's holy law. But the the Sadducees rejected all of these oral traditions of the Pharisees. The Sadducees only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And because they believe that the Pentateuch never mentions the resurrection, they therefore didn't believe in the resurrection. But Jesus will school them in how to interpret the Old Testament, something that they prided themselves on. Jesus is going to tell them that they are wrong. He'll say it twice. And the Pentateuch, in fact, does mention the resurrection. Jesus will answer their question, which was this. If a woman is married seven times, whose wife will she be in the afterlife? Now, here's what's behind their question. In the Old Testament, there is a case law in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, that says that if your brother dies and leaves behind a wife with no children, then it is your responsibility to help, I think we all know what that means, to help your sister-in-law conceive so that she could have children so that your brother's name would live on. It's actually a form of coveting. Actually, the way Deuteronomy is breaking down, I wrote my thesis on this in seminary, the way the book of Deuteronomy is written uh, and how it breaks down is that this section in Deuteronomy 25 and part of 26, Moses is telling them what coveting looks like. And this is a form of coveting because they are taking future children from this woman if they do not intervene. So the Sadducees want to know what would happen if the six brothers tried and then died and the sister-in-law was never able to conceive children. Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Which of the seven brothers would be married to her then? Jesus answers them in verse 24. Look there. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now keep in mind here that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They're just trying to trap Jesus and gather some ammunition that they can use against him. But Jesus will not let them get away with this. He will actually school the Sadducees about the resurrection from the Pentateuch, the only part of the Mosaic law that they recognize the Scripture. So Jesus will make two points here. Number one, he tells them that they are wrong to suggest, even though they don't believe it, they are wrong to suggest that there will be marriages and weddings in heaven. They're wrong to make this assumption. People won't be getting married in heaven. We will be resurrected with new glorified bodies that, just like the angels, we will never die. We will never die again. Angels don't die. We won't die because we will be given new resurrected bodies that cannot die. Secondly, Jesus tells them that they're wrong to say that the Pentateuch does not mention the resurrection. When the Lord tells Moses at the burning bush that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then that's proof that there is an afterlife Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive in God's presence. These three men had been long dead when Moses appeared at the burning bush. So the fact that God brings them up as living 
proves that there is an afterlife, which the Sadducees denied. These three had experienced a spiritual resurrection and they were awaiting bodily resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's spirits were made alive. They were resurrected and now they're awaiting their bodies. The Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection and yet, with their question, they're acting like they do. As if they were really concerned about such a situation. They should have been focused on helping real people Not coming up with a bunch of what ifs. What about this, Jesus? What about that? They had real neighbors that they should have been caring for, but they were focused on a hypothetical situation that was not real. If they knew a woman who was in this position and had already gone through seven husbands and still having no kids and had these husbands that just kept dying, then they should have gone and helped her. Should have bought her groceries mowed her yard for her, changed the oil in her car. They should have been focusing on tangible needs and not focusing on a bunch of what-ifs. You see how easy it is for us to slip into being one of the Sadducees, where you focus on the wrong things, the what-ifs, the what about this, the what about that, and to neglect real needs right in front of you. We become like Sadducees when we make what-ifs and non-essentials the main things. We become like Sadducees when we make what-ifs and non-essentials the main things. Like music style and preference, our view of creation and the age of the earth, homeschool, private school, public school. These are the things that we tend to elevate and make the main things, and they're not the main things. This is what our website says about this on our About Grace page. It begins with our mission statement. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. And then it says, this page will give you a feel for who we are and the things we love to emphasize at Grace. And then it lists three of those things. We love the gospel. At the very top of the list, we love the gospel. We love to enjoy God. And we love Reformed theology. Now, underneath the heading on Reformed theology, it says this. While we love Reformed theology, which is the great doctrines that emerged again out of the Reformation, Martin Luther, Calvin, others like that. While we love Reformed theology, we never want anyone to feel that they must embrace all of our beliefs to be a part of grace. We love what we believe because we believe that it is taught in Scripture. Therefore, you will hear Reformed theology taught at grace. But we never want to bully anyone with our beliefs. In non-essential doctrines and areas of preference like end times, eschatology, old earth versus young earth, schooling choices, private, public, homeschool, we emphasize humility and love. There is more agreement in some areas than in others, but mostly we want to encourage humility love for one another, a primary focus on the gospel, and a realization that we are a family made up of different backgrounds, preferences, and convictions. What better atmosphere to learn and practice the love and humble service of Christ? We put that up there so that people know what we're about as a church. We want to emphasize the gospel here at Grace. 
We want to be known for that. In all of the other what-ifs and what-abouts and areas of preference, we want to emphasize humility and love. We're a family here. And what better atmosphere to learn and practice the love and humble service of Christ than in a family that is gospel-centered? So how do you do that? How do you learn and practice the love and humble service of Christ when there are disagreements? Here's how. You focus on your Savior, not on your behavior, and then you'll be free to love on your neighbor. You focus on your Savior, not your neighbor's behavior, which is what a lot of us do, right? You focus on your Savior, not on your neighbor's behavior, and not on your behavior. So when you come face to face with God's grace, you move from this place of self to the place of sacrifice and service. You move from loving you to loving others. And sometimes you move out to love the unlovable people that you disagree with. When you focus on your Savior and not yourself, it will actually catapult you out to serve others. That's the Christian life right there, looking up to Christ by faith and then looking out to others in love. That's what the Christian life is all about right there. Looking up to Christ by faith and then out to others in love. And Jesus is about to tell the Sadducees those two aspects of the Christian life. He's going to tell them that the two most important things in life are loving God and loving others. As Jesus is shooting down the Sadducees' faulty, non-existent belief in the resurrection, he will get interrupted by a scribe who wants to jump in on this game of Bible trivia. Look at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So one of the scribes overheard this dialogue about the resurrection that Jesus is having with the Sadducees. And now he wants to get in on this game of Bible trivia. He liked Jesus' answer to the Sadducees' question. So now he wants to call in to the Bible Answer Man show. And he wants to pose his question to Jesus. Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus, of course, answered correctly and told the scribe that loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself are the most important commandments. And the scribe agrees with Jesus. He says, to do these two commandments is better than offering all of the right sacrifices. So this guy is tracking with Jesus at this point. His answer to his own question lines up with Jesus. But Jesus still wins this game of Bible trivia because Jesus knows that though this scribe knows all the right answers, he hasn't yet felt the weight of the law. That's why Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. 
What this man, this scribe needs is not just correct theology, not just the right theological answers. He needs to now feel the weight of God's holy law. He needs to feel the weight of those two commandments. This scribe needs to come to grips with the fact that he hasn't loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he hasn't loved his neighbor as himself. Not perfectly anyway, which is exactly what God's law requires. God's law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, requires perfection. Requires perfection of us. God's law requires each of us to be perfect. You want to be with God? You've got to be perfect. Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly. But who can do that? Only Jesus. Only Jesus loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only Jesus loved his neighbor perfectly. And if this scribe can be crushed by the weight of the law and see his desperate need of Jesus and reach out the empty hands of faith, then he too can be saved and enjoy the kingdom of God. Love God, love others. Look up to Christ by faith, look out to others in love. Jesus is basically telling this scribe, focus on your Savior, not on your behavior, and then you'll be free to love on your neighbor. It's as we stay focused on Jesus and all that he has done for us that we begin to see the needs of others. As we focus on our identity in Christ, we are then free to love and serve others. It's because we are loved by God and we no longer have to perform for him to try to earn his love that we are then set free to love others. Our good works are not done for God now as if they earned his favor in any way. Now our good works are done for our neighbors. As Martin Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God has good works for us to do, but God doesn't need our good works. It's our neighbors who need our good works. God doesn't need anything from you. You need God, and I need God, but God doesn't need us. So God doesn't need your good works, but you know who does? Your neighbor. Your neighbor, all the neighbors that live in your house that you struggle to get along with because you're so good and perfect and they bother you because, you know, they've got issues but you're perfect. All the neighbors at work that you work with who do all those things wrong that drive you nuts. All those neighbors who are really your neighbors in your neighborhood that bother you. Why can't the guy just mow his lawn? Ugh. That's who needs your good works. Your neighbor needs you to be so free in the gospel that you move out in love and serve them. As Elise Fitzpatrick says, my identity is that right now I am more loved than I could ever dream. Justification by grace through faith frees me to take my eyes off how I'm doing and how you're doing and look to Jesus who will place neighbors before me who need to be loved today. When you focus on Jesus and you get your eyes off of yourself, God will bring other people along your path for you to love on. When you have faith that Jesus paid it all and you don't have to earn God's love, it frees you to love and serve others. Faith in Jesus frees us to love. 
And if faith in Jesus frees us to love, then the million-dollar question is, where does faith come from? Where do we get faith? If faith in Jesus, trust in his work, trust in belief in the gospel, if that frees us to love, then the million-dollar question is, where does faith come from? Because I need faith in order to love others. Where does faith come from? Where do we get faith? Answer, by hearing about Jesus. That's how you get faith, by hearing about Jesus and all that he has already done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. In Romans 10, in case you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe Paul. In Romans 10, 17, Paul tells us where faith comes from. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ through the gospel. Faith comes from hearing the good news over and over and over again. Faith comes from hearing the gospel over and over and over again. Faith comes from hearing about Jesus. So the word of Christ creates faith. The gospel creates faith in your heart. That means that if you want more faith in your life, or you want to be more loving, or whatever you want to be, or whatever you want to do, or whatever that you want more of in your life, then you need to spend time talking about the word of Christ or the gospel. If you want more faith in your life or more love in your life for your spouse because they're bothering you right now, you're in a season where you're just kind of functional roommates. If you want more love in your life for your spouse or more love for your neighbor or for a coworker or more desire to serve others, whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that you need more of in the Christian life, You have to spend time thinking about, reading about, and hearing the word of Christ, the gospel. If you want transformation, you have to keep hearing the gospel over, over, and over again. That's why we keep rehearsing the gospel here at Grace. That's why our sermons are centered on Jesus and what he has done for us and not not what we must do for him. Why? Because it's the word of Christ, the gospel, that creates faith that creates trust. And what matters most is when this faith finds expression in our lives. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that counts in life, Christian. Is your faith in Jesus expressing itself in love? The only thing that matters whether you live another 30 years or you only live for three more days, the only thing that matters in your life is your faith and your trust in Jesus expressing itself through love for God and love for neighbor. And now remember, how do you get faith? By hearing the word of Christ, by hearing the gospel over, over, over over again by hearing that Jesus lived and died for you and was resurrected on the third day. And so the preacher's job, my job, is not to preach faith. It's not to preach love. It's not to preach giving. We don't preach a lot about giving here. It's not to preach evangelism. It's not to preach serving. My job is to preach the word of Christ, to preach Jesus, to preach the gospel. My job is to preach the gospel week after week because that creates faith in your heart and in mine. That creates trust in your heart and in mind. 
and faith expressing itself in love for God and love for neighbor, Paul says, is the only thing that matters. Hearing the gospel produces faith. And the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love for God and others. That's it. That's why we are a gospel-centered church. Because the gospel empowers you to express your faith and your trust in Jesus in ways that demonstrate love for God and love for others. Which happens to be the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters in your life. Which happens to be the two greatest commandments according to Jesus. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. And then you will be free to love on your neighbor. See, we actually behave better when we start believing better. May God make us a church that believes better, believes the gospel better and better. May we behold Jesus Christ more and more so that we will become like Jesus Christ more and more. And then may that faith and that trust in Jesus catapult us out to love and serve others for God's glory, which is what this is all about. Faith is accepting and believing that Jesus has, uncon- has been unconditionally kind to you, that his love is real, that you don't have to earn his love. Do you really think that God is pleased when you view him as a hard taskmaster or as an angry boss that you work for? Do you think God is really pleased by that? You're like, I did this stuff for you. Huh? Happy now? I'm so pleased with you. You did the things that you didn't want to do for me. You think God's pleased that way? Or do you just believe and then move out in love? Faith is, I'm not trying to bribe God anymore. I'm not trying to impress him because I can't. I just receive his love because he is as good as he says he is in his word. That's faith. And the only thing that counts is that faith expressing itself in love for others. Loving other people the way that God loves you. Do lots of stuff for the Lord your God. Is that what Jesus said was the greatest commandment? No, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You know, the word, Hebrew word soul is, is the word throat. Love the Lord your God with all your throat. Well, what does that mean? Because the throat is where we take in air, where we take in food, where we take in drink, water. Loving the Lord our God with our throat is having a taste. It's to delight in Him. It's to enjoy Him. Do you enjoy God? The solution to a lack of love for God or for others is to preach Christ to yourself again. The solution to a lack of love for God, a lack of love for a neighbor, is to preach the love of God for sinners like you to yourself Let me ask you as we close, is your heart cold to Jesus this morning? Then preach Christ to your heart. Preach his love. Preach his mercy. Preach his kindness towards you, to you. And that will warm and that will thaw out your ice cold affections. That will warm and that will thaw out your ice cold heart. Jonathan Edwards said, true Gospel discoveries excite love in the soul and draw forth the heart in love. Let's pray and then we'll sing about some true gospel discoveries.
Heavenly Father, thank you that you are as good as you say you are. It's real, it's true. You are merciful to sinners. You don't give us what we deserve. In fact, you're gracious. You give us what we don't deserve, which is your love, which is your son's righteousness, which is your spirit. And you've invited us into this dance that you've been experiencing for all eternity, this love dance between Father, Son, and Spirit. And you have welcomed us in and said, come and enjoy this. Come and get in on this. And that's good news. May that once again this morning be true gospel discoveries for us that excite love in our souls, love for you and love for others, Father, and that draw forth our hearts in love. Do this, we ask, by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.